John 1.14. This is the very beginning of John. John, the book of John is different from the other four gospels in that it doesn't start with the virgin birth. It doesn't start with, with that aspect of things, the more natural aspect of things, but it starts with Christ at the beginning, Christ as the word, and Christ as eternal. So we see in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the words highlighted that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson in, in the message Bible writes, the word became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. And so this, this idea of the word becoming flesh and the word dwelling among us. I mean, the book of John is, is one that people read mostly. It's the one that people hand out. It's the one that people teach a lot from. And it's, it's because of, of what's, what's inside of it and because of how evangelistic the book is, but it's also because of the great story that it tells, a full story of Christ being eternal, coming down and resting among us and being among us, resting in us and leading us as well. And so that, that's, that's really the most beautiful aspect of this book and the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful aspects of, of Christianity itself is that God didn't stay up there, didn't stay out there and away, but rather God came down, he came to us, and he, he's intimate with us, he sits with us, he stands with us, he walks with us, he's leading us, and moving with us and through us. And, and so the, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us is such a beautiful picture of who God is and, and the love that he brings to us. We'll do a quick overview of John. It's unique among the four gospels, and, and that there's only 8% parity with the other, with the other three. So, so the other ones, Mark, Matthew, Luke, they, they share a little bit in, in terms of grammar, syntax, the stories that are written. Whereas John focuses primarily on, on primary material, primary sources from, from what most people believe the writer to be as the, the Apostle John. The book, as I, said, as I mentioned earlier, it's primarily evangelistic. It's written to unbelieving Greek-speaking Jews. It has extended discourses in it. So the other books, they have more so parables, short stories, things like that, whereas John dives into the discussions that Christ had with people, especially the, the discussions Christ had with his disciples and with the Pharisees. So he had both, both aspects there. And, and it was largely a Jewish, a heavily Jewish book in that they, they paid, the, John paid a lot of attention to how, to the Jewish customs, explaining about the Jewish customs and how Christ came in, how Christ changed them, and also to how, to the arguments that Christ had against the, you know, with the Pharisees, and how Christ brought this fullness of the gospel, this fullness of the law into this Jewish understanding. Um, there's also more teaching on the Holy Spirit in, in the book of John compared to the other Gospels. The more teaching on how the Holy Spirit was gonna, is helping us, how, how it's a helper, how the Holy Spirit moves in us, and what the Holy Spirit was going to do. And then finally, based on fragments found in 1920, the book is dated to, at the very latest, the last decade of the first century. So, so that's the latest that, that, the, that the book is, is uh, dated to, meaning that it was a, a primary source, meaning that it was written from people who knew Jesus, people who walked with Jesus, and who had that, that experience, right, with Christ. Which also helps us to see it as uh, true, right? To see it as something we can trust, something we can walk with, something we can be a part of. John 5.19 says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So as a dad myself, you know, I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and I've, I've been understanding this more and more as my kids get older and as they grow up. And I know that my example to my kids speaks volumes more than my words to my kids, right? And my son, within the past month or so, I've been noticing a little bit of, 
for whatever reason, a little bit of distance between myself and my son. I really wasn't sure what's going on. And I was praying about it, thinking about it, talking with Megan about it, and trying to figure out what, what's going on. What can I do there? And all God showed me to do was to just spend more time with him and just being, being goofy with him, just being silly with him, and just being with him. And so, I, to, to my wife's embarrassment, I love professional wrestling. And so I was watching professional wrestling, and he came alongside and was watching it with me, and then he started wrestling with me, right? He started being, doing what they were doing, and we were, we were having fun. And we were together, and, we, and we, were, we were becoming more intimate as father and son just in that act of, of wrestling. And then he went and body slammed his sister, and then we had to stop that. <laughs> and I had to say, you can do that to me, but you can't do it to your poor sister, because she, she gets a lot of that. Another thing he loves is video games. And, and he loves playing video games and Minecraft and, and all these things that I've, I've never had the chance to play. But he also loves it when I sit there and watch him play, which is the most boring thing for me. I can't handle it. But when I sit there and watch him play, and he's showing me all these cool moves, and he's showing me all this, this, this cool stuff in the game, he's beaming, he's having fun, he's excited, and he's enjoying that time together. He's enjoying that, that, that bonding, he's enjoying just being with his father. And so, and, and my daughter Rachel, just yesterday, she, I was working on this teaching and focused on this, and she wanted to play cards, and so the first thing I said was, no, I'm busy. I can't do it. And so she went and went into the back room, played cards with Megan, played cards with Isaiah. And she came back in. It was about 20 minutes later. Sat down next to me and said, Dad, I want to play blackjack with you. <laughs> and and, and I, my first thought was, where'd you learn how to play blackjack from? <laughs> and then the second part was, yes, I'll play blackjack with you. And she, she didn't know about, she didn't know how to play blackjack. She just had heard about it as a game. So I was teaching her how to play it and teaching her how to, how to count, right, counting, teaching her counting and valuable life skills among the gambling skills. <laughs> and I learned a couple things from that is that one, she takes a lot of risks and she will, she, <laughs> she, she'll continue to hit even if she has 18, right? And so blackjack, you wanna get to 21 and not go over it, but she'll get to 17 and 18 and say, hit me. And in which I give another card and, she, she actually got some, some 21s out of that, out of just taking those risks, but she, she's, she's all in, right, when she does that. And so it was, it was just another fun time, and these aren't necessarily super spiritual things that I'm doing with, with the kids in these two instances, but what it does is it, it endears us together, it bonds us together so that when those times of teaching do come about, then it's easier for me to speak into their lives because they're, they're, we already have that bond and we already have that connection of just being silly, right? And so Christ, our example, Christ as the one who dwells with us, lives with us, teaches us, it's the same thing. We, we make that bond with him. He moves through us and shows us in that relationship how to deal with others so that we make bonds with others have fun with them, but also be intentional about it. Put Christ at the center and affect change in lives and affect the gospel in people's lives. So in this passage, I want you to pay attention to the repetition that's here. In John 1, 35 through 46, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. The next day he proposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, 
We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And so just looking at the words that I highlighted on this passage, they followed Jesus. They asked him where he was staying, and he said, Come and you will see. Jesus said to Philip, Follow me. And then, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. So there's repetition there, and all of this is basically an invitation, right? An invitation that Jesus is extending to others to, to come and be with them. To come and see means to come and experience. To come and see means to come and live. And, and what we're doing now is we're going through John and we're, and we're looking for principles. We're not necessarily looking for methodology because this is a first century context and this is a 21st century life. So we want to see how Jesus did things foundationally rather than how he did things in actuality and, phys and physically, right? Because we want to see how, how those foundations apply to us today. And so when we see these, this passage and this repetition that says, follow me, come and, come and you will see, follow me, come and see, all that's telling us is that as a, disciple, as a disciple who disciples, all we have to say is come and see. Come walk with me, come experience Christ with me, and be a part of what I'm doing, be a part of my life, and be a part of everything that I am, because within me is Christ, and within me is, is this, this beautiful love of Jesus. And so one of the first people to, to really show me that was my youth pastor. I went to church here at Church on the Rock um, a while ago. And my mom, my mom had gotten saved when I was in 10th grade, and then she started forcing me to go to church. And we went to uh, Assemblies of God Church at first. There wasn't anything for youth there. So we moved to um, Church on the Rock, which is one of the largest churches. Well, not one of the largest, but a larger church here in the city. And they had a pretty good youth group. And so when I went there, I wasn't interested in Christ. I wasn't interested in any of this, anything with the Bible. And I was going because I was forced to go. But Pastor Adam saw me. He introduced himself. He introduced me to some of the other kids in there that were like me and got me, got me connected there. But more than that, Pastor Adam brought me into his life. And he brought me into his experience of who he was as a Christ follower, as a lover of Christ, and as someone who who really got paid to, to, to disciple people, right? And so I, I wasn't interested in anything else, but I was, I was helpful. And so I, at, the end of, at the end of the Wednesday night services, I'd say, do you need help putting up these chairs? Do you need help with the tables? Whatever it was. And he would always say, yeah, come help me. And so as we were, as we were cleaning up, everyone else had basically left, and it was just him and me. Um, just putting up stuff, then he would start speaking into my life. He would start asking me questions, and, and he would start inserting who Christ was and, insert, and inserting prophetic acts of, of Christ's words and thoughts about me into me. And, and then it became a, a point where he would invite me to come and help him with things. He would invite me to come to, to church and help him paint the, the youth room. And, and, and just to be with him, just, just to spend time with him and just to, just to hear about Jesus. And, and he, he, he was really very influential in, in the person I am today, but the person in Christ that I am as well. Because he opened the door to this reality that I didn't understand until I started working with him and until he started speaking to me. He was discipling me, right? He, was, he brought me into his experience and showed me Christ and showed me how to become mature and how to, how to be discipled, but also how to disciple. A little later on in John, we come to the woman at the well. Right? So Jesus goes into Samaria, and Samaria and, and the Jewish people at this time had, had fights, right? They, they, they weren't the closest of, of people. They weren't close with each other. They were, they were, there was a lot of strife and a lot of fighting there. And so when Jesus sat with her and told, you know, he, he had the thing about speaking prophetically in her life about, 
um, asking her if she has a husband. She says, no, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right, you've had a few. And, and she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet and goes out and tells people in the city, she says, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word in the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his, his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. So for her too, right, another repetition. And, and so we see that she goes out to, to, to the town of, that, that she was near, says, come and see this guy who, who read my mail, this guy who told me things about myself and who told me about this living water, and come and, come and listen to it, right? So she wasn't saying, she wasn't saying, you guys need to get your lives right at this moment, right? She wasn't doing anything about bashing people on the heads with, with morality. All she was saying is, come and see. It's an invitation, right? And so what did they do? They came and they saw, and they, they were asking Jesus to stay with them. And so what did Jesus do? He stayed with them. And he entered again, right? Just like at the, at the beginning we saw in John 1 about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For two days, he dwelt among the Sumerians. And for two days, he entered into their experience, he entered into their life, and he, he taught them, he showed them, he was an example to them. And the result was that they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. So they heard, they experienced, and then they, they matured in it and believed. So for me, another person that, that discipled me was this guy named Rick Padilla. He and his wife, Connie, basically told me to, to come and see in, in, their, in their family. He, they, they invited me into their family. He was a, an evangelist, a music promoter. He had come to Church on the Rock um, a couple years after I had started going. Um, Pastor Adam was discipling me, and then this guy came along, and this guy was more like me, right? Because when I was younger, I was really into hip-hop. I was really into that aspect of things. And so, and, and here comes a guy who dressed like me, who looked like me, who was older than me, but also worked with Christian hip-hop artists and would bring them into the city as evangelistic tools. And, and, and he, would, he would reach out to the guys that, that were like me, the guys who... I hated school, I, I wasn't a part of, you know, I, I didn't like any of that. I was more into what I was wanting, more into what I was doing. And so he would reach out to those guys and, and bring them into his family. And so he saw me and he brought me into his family and, and him and his, his wife Connie and his, his four kids, five kids at the time, uh, they, they just fully accepted me and it wasn't anything other than come and spend time with us, come and be with us. And along the way, he would teach me about Christ. We would talk, have discussions. If I had questions, I would ask him if other people had questions, because he, he, he had a few people from church, you know, from the youth group that he brought in too. And so if other people had questions, then th we would all have this group discussion about what it meant. What did Jesus mean when he did this? You know, how can we trust that Jesus is real? How can we trust that all of this is true? And so, most of the time, Rick didn't really know. Or he didn't really have a good understanding immediately, but he would go, he would say, I don't know, and he'd go and read the Bible, and then he'd come back and give us some, some answer, right? But it, it, it was those times that really imprinted itself on us in, in that he was vulnerable and that he was willing to be, to be teachable himself and to learn. And... It also wasn't necessarily the, the main thing that we did with him, too, because we would do mostly, we would, we would be just be with him and just be laughing and just be talking about life and just be, just be talking about our struggles in school. And it was so much easier to talk to Rick than it was to anybody else, right? Because Rick was this person who just brought us in and, and surrounded us with so much love that there was, it, it, it was just natural. It just became natural that we would stay with him that we would walk with him and that 
and through that, we would understand better about what, who, who Christ was in our lives and, and how Christ worked in our lives. One simple aspect of, of discipleship, too, is found in uh, John 10, 26 to 27. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So here's a principle that gets lost a lot in, with, with people in, in thinking that they're not trained enough, they don't have the right tools, they don't, they don't have the right whatever it is, anointing or just seminary training to say, I can't disciple people because I'm not prepared or I'm not ready. And really, you don't need much to disciple. You just need to know the voice of Jesus and to say yes. There was an, another guy who discipled me and, and discipled Megan too at the same time was this guy, Mike Phillips in East Texas. Megan and I were part of Youth with a Mission for a while. And so we lived out in East Texas. We were missionaries here in the city, mission, or here in, in the U.S., where we would teach and train other missionaries from, from across the world that would come in, they would learn more about Jesus, learn more about the Bible, and go out and, and, and do outreaches across the world. And so at that time, being, being missionaries and being in youth with a mission, we were really poor. I think we were living off about $5,000 a year. We didn't have a car, you know, we, we didn't have much. But we were newly married. We had an apartment there with, on the base, something that they gave to us, basically. And, but we had no way to, to get around. We had no way to get to church. We had no way to really get to the grocery store. We had to rely on people for all of that. And there, there was a church really close to us. It was about a half mile away. It, it, was, it was a Southern Baptist church called Life Point, Life Point Fellowship. And so one, one day, we decided we'd try it out. We, we decided that we'd go and, and just see. We, we knew it was Southern Baptist. We were a little bit more charismatic than Southern Baptist. So we weren't sure how it was going to work out. But we decided, well, we'll go see it. It's, it's really all we, all we can do, right? Because we wanted to be a part of a church body. We wanted to be, be a part of the broader range of what Christ was doing. And so we, we set out walking to church. It was a half mile. This was East Texas, Tyler, Texas on the outskirts, and there's no sidewalks, right? And, and everything is a highway and a byway. That, that's all there is in Texas, highways and byways. And so this was on a highway, cars zooming past us. We would walk, and part of the, the yard in front of the church and off to the side was, was mowed consistently. But then there was another part closer to where we were, that just had weeds, uh, you know, up here and was hard to walk through. And so we'd be walking on the road and trying to get to church. And so we, we made it that first day into the church. We were there. It was hot. It was summer. And we sat down, met the pastor, who's a really great guy, and still praying, is this, is this the place for us? And not knowing if we would fit in. And so, we, so the pastor gets up front, and he starts teaching, and he said, he says he's beginning a, a, a series on the gifts of the Spirit. And the first one is going to be on speaking in tongues, right? <laughs> and so a Southern Baptist church, too. And it was, it, was, it was a subtle Southern Baptist church where they wouldn't have Southern Baptists in the name, but they were still, still fully Southern Baptists and still, you know, still work the same way. And so we sat through the whole thing, and how it ended was the pastor basically said that he, he's not a cessationist. He believes that these gifts are still active. He doesn't speak in tongues, but he knows of good men and women who do. And he said, I'm fine with that. And then so we were like, well, we're home. <laughs> we're right here in, in East Texas. We don't have a way to church anyway. So we're going to come here. And so, so that was a good experience. We walked home. Next Sunday, we walked back to church, right? And when we got into church, this, this man, Mike Phillips, came up to us and introduced himself, said he was Mike Phillips, introduced his wife, Paula, and said, I've seen you guys walking from, from that area. I said, where, where are you guys from? And we mentioned, you know, we're with Youth of the Mission and um, working at the base that's just right around the corner. And, and he said, oh, I, every so often I pick up this other guy. He was, a, he was disabled from, from the same area, from, from Youth of the Mission, too. So, so, so every so often I pick up this guy, um, do you want me to, you know, do you want to ride to church? And we were like, sure. So at, at the end of that, 
that Sunday, he just gave us a ride home, right? And, and he gave us a ride home, and then he told us, next Sunday, I'll be here 10 minutes before church starts, so just come out and be ready, and, and then we'll head to church. So, so we, next Sunday came, we went out, he was there, and we, he drove us to church. And so we did this for about a month, right, of him just, just being obedient and him just being a servant, serving us and bringing us to church. And then, so we started getting more and more involved in, in, in this church. I started teaching in, the, um, in some of their, uh, uh, what, what are they called? Sunday school, Sunday, Sunday school things. Um, we started teaching a, a young adults program there. And it, it was about a month later that Mike invited us to his life group. And, and we wanted, you know, we wanted more interaction. We wanted more, more relationship with people and said, yeah, you know, if you're going to come pick us up, well, we'll you know, we're, we're into, into this life group. And so he said, okay, on Wednesday night, it starts at this time and I'm going to come pick you up. So he, he, can't, he comes, he picks us up and then drives us a ways away, about 15 minutes away to this other town right next to Tyler. It's called Chandler, Chandler, Texas. And so we, we drove it, drive into Chandler, very, you know, still rural Texas. And so, so we drive around, he points out his house, which is just down the road. And then he, and then we drive into a driveway, just, you know, another minute or so up there. And he says, okay, we're here. And so we, you know, we go into, into the life group. But what really struck me was that this guy lives basically next door to, to this life group he, in, this, in this different city than, than what we're in. But he said, just, just out of being a servant and out of listening to Christ, he said, oh, I want to come pick you up and bring you to, to my life group. So he would get out of his, you know, leave his house, which is probably a one-minute drive to, to the life group, and come and drive 15 minutes out to pick us up, drive 15 minutes back, have life group, and then at the end, another 15 to drop us off, and another 15 back, right? That's like a whole hour added to his day of just driving. But, but because of who he is and because of, because of him listening, he, he, he heard the voice of Christ, and he followed what Christ said. And he didn't need to have any sort of pretension about him, about needing to be a pastor and being paid for it. He didn't even need to have an understanding of himself as an evangelist or anything like that. All he had was himself. He worked 12 hours a day, worked for an electrical company there. But he had a truck, and he saw that we didn't have a vehicle, but we wanted to be connected. And so he came, picked us up, invited us into his life, into the life of him and his wife, and, and largely the lives of everybody in that life group, too. And so it, he didn't have much, but he was a discipler. He didn't have... You know, I, I don't know necessarily how he feels about himself as knowing much about the Bible or anything like that, but what he spoke into our lives was invaluable, not just through his actions, but also through words that came out because of his actions and, you know, because we could, we could accept it better or, you know, we're just, we're just family at that point. And so when, when you see Christ saying, come and see, or when you see other people saying, come and see in John, or follow me, it, they're not doing it out of any sense of, of thinking that there's something special. Not so much as knowing that what they have inside them is special, or the Christ that they have inside them is special, and knowing that Christ demands expression, right? Christ demands us to love one another through, through any means possible. And that can be through teaching if you feel comfortable with it, but it can also be in just giving people a ride. It can be in going out to coffee with somebody and being intentional in that relationship of instilling Christ, Christ first, and, you know, just simple things as praying for a meal instills Christ in that time and instills Christ in that relationship. And so it's little things like that that we don't have to worry about anything else other than relying on Christ's voice and then just saying yes, which is difficult, right? I mean, I, I know it's difficult for, for a lot of us because we worry and we have anxiety and we think, oh, I'm not up to par or I don't know how that's going to play out. But really, in, in the act of saying yes and in the action of, of, of walking that out, Christ is the one that comes and, and carries us, right? Christ is the one that comes and leads us and guides us. And yeah, you might make mistakes, but that's okay. Because 
it's okay to make mistakes as long as we're, we're teachable, we're humble, and we're, we're seeking Christ and, and the goodness of, of who he is in a relationship. So in John 11, 32-35, we come to the story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so right before this, um, people had come up to Jesus saying, Lazarus is really sick. You, you need to get down to him and, and pray for him and heal him. And what did Jesus do? He, he took his time. He said, okay. He said, I'm coming. But he went slowly, right? And he saw the Samaritan woman on the way and, and all this other stuff. And then what happens? Lazarus dies, right? And so this is picking up right when Jesus is getting to where Mary and Martha are. It says, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the, the, the beauty about this passage isn't that Jesus thought that Lazarus was dead, right? It, it, it's, it's not in that aspect because Jesus knew what he was going to do. The next, the next few verses said Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he saw everybody else crying. He saw everybody else hurt and broken hearts. And so he empathized with them. He was vulnerable with them. And the emotions came out of him, right? The emotions came out of him not because of a loss, but because of how other people were feeling in this moment and, and, and how Mary and Martha felt, who he loved, right? He loved all of them, Mary, Martha, Jesus, and Lazarus. And, and he experienced it, right? He came and he experienced this aspect of death and this aspect of, of loss within other people. And so a principle that we find in there is that leaders are open and honest. And... So let me, um, let me tell you about your pastor, Alan, for a little bit. <clears throat> when, when, when I enter a church, there's always a, and I've been a part of, of several and, and worked with a few, so I've gotten to know some pastors, right? And so there, there's always this sense of, I don't know if it's skepticism, jadedness, whatever it is, but when you go into church and you hear a pastor speaking, you, all, you always wonder, is he really who he says he is, right? You always wonder, does he really act the way he's teaching us, the way he's telling us? Does he do what he says he's going to do? Does he handle conflict the way he's telling us? Does he love people the way he's telling us? Does he do this and that? And so here, just like everywhere else, I was suspicious, right? I was a little bit, I was testing, I was waiting and seeing, and for whatever it's worth for you guys, um, you know, I've been here, been on staff here for about almost two years, um, been get, coming, coming more into this, this pastoral role over the past month or so, and there, there have been several times that I've seen Alan walk how, he's, how he directs us and walk how he leads us and walk how he teaches us. And there have been times too where he's brought me along on some hard things that he had to deal with, conflict that he had to deal with with other people. And seeing his heart and seeing his humility in those situations, which I always kind of wondered, right? Is, is, he, is he really humble in, in those instances? And he is. And so, yeah. So he is who he says he is. And, and I say that for no reason other than just to be open and honest with you about your leadership here at the church, that this is a man to be honored when you see him. This is a man to learn from and to gather as much as you can from him. Because as he says, you know, that him and Gail are in the last, last years of their, their ministry here, here in the pulpit. And so we need to honor them as, as much as we can and get as much as we can out of them before that, before they move on, before life happens, before things happen like that. And so whenever you get the chance, just let me encourage you guys to, to you know, get a hold of him, show him love, show him respect, show Gail the same honor and the same respect, and, and get, get what you can out of those guys. 
Because just like this, they're, they're true disciples of Christ in that they're open and honest and that they are vulnerable when they need to be vulnerable. And they'll stand up for you. They'll fight for you. And we also need to be fighting for them as well and standing up for them and being with them. So he's a little bit after, after um, Jesus wept. He says, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And then he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. So part of discipleship is, is being intentional of, of who you're talking to and in any situation you're in to be able to teach out of those situations and, and to be able to be that example of Christ in those situations, right? Because Jesus right here says, I knew that you always heard me. He was talking to the Father. But because of the people standing around, I said it so they may believe that you sent me. So even then, even something simple like this, Jesus is, is, is teaching in this situation. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. So he's calling out Lazarus. He's calling out the, this, this miracle of a person, both you know, physically being raised from the dead, but just also who Lazarus was and, who, and Lazarus as, as uh, in relationship with Christ. And so to disciple is to teach in any situation and to always be looking for something, to be intentional about, about what you're doing with people, how you're speaking to people, how you're leading people, and how you're walking with people. So we'll look at a couple uh, practical things now about discipleship um, and looking at small versus large. John 3, 16, 17, I'm sure everybody knows this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So in here we have a beautiful mission statement and a beautiful example of how Christ's what Christ's goals was in, in coming to the world, in dwelling with us. It's not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He came to change the world. But how did he do it? Right? Looking through John, we see that he raised up disciples, raised up a group of 12, but he also had these more evangelistic moments of speaking to the multitudes. But yet he favored one over the other. Right? And so why... Why would, he, why would he favor the small number over the large when we think that the large would be, you know, maybe would be the best thing, right? In John 13, 13 through 17, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who was sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So here we see that, one, how, how Christ teaches is he teaches through example, right? And so it's easier to teach through example to 12 people, to a small group, than to the multitudes. You can, you can gather the multitudes and you can teach them, but how much of an example can you be to them? Because an example invokes intimacy. An example invokes somebody walking closely with you so that you can show them who you are and who you are in Christ. So in all of this, we, we, you know, we, like at, at the beginning of this teaching, we look at Christ our example. Christ is our example in everything. And so how did he move? He moved by being the example for us in, in all these situations and being an example to the disciples, to a small group, and leading them into basically being disciplers themselves so that they would go out and then disciple 12 more, however many more, for a while. Then send them out, disciple more, right? Multiplication. And so you, you reach the same goal as, as, as teaching to the masses as far as people-wise, but you do it through a much more effective way of showing example and, and being, being a being able to teach better and being able to be a better example through smaller groups. John 6, 66 through 69. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right before this, Jesus was talking about the you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood aspect of things, right? And so that freaked some people out. And, and they couldn't handle that, right? The, there was a lot of people around him hearing these words and saying, well, this guy's this guy cannibal. How are we going to do this? I can't eat him. I can't drink his blood. And so they, they, they couldn't understand. And so they walked away. But yet the disciples and Simon Peter stayed with him. Jesus said to the 12, the 12 who were there, the 12 who were walking with him, and the 12 who were experiencing life with him, the 12 who were bonded with him remained because of relationship, right? And it's easier to have that relationship with a few rather than so many, rather than the 5,000 or even less than that. So when you're looking at, at being a discipler, a disciple who disciples, we we're not interested in a, in a numbers game as far as how many people we can necessarily reach. We're just interested in that one. We're interested in the one that, that Christ has given to us, the one that Christ has brought to us, and instilling so much of Christ in, into them and then, and then saying, okay, now it's your turn. Now you go and you do the same thing. John 17, 6 through 10 <clears throat> I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you for the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. So here we see that discipleship is intentional, Christocentric relationship. And all that means is that discipleship is intentionally putting Christ in the center. We discussed this a little bit earlier, but here we see that Christ says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And so what Christ did was he brought himself center in, in their lives. What we do, because Christ is in us, we bring Christ in between the relationship that I have with my wife, the relationship that I have with Paul, the relationship that I have with each one of you. If we make that intentional and, and, and focus on bringing Christ out of these situations, then, we, then, then we're effectively discipling and we're effectively living this life and, and this walk that Christ has, has shown us how to live. And Christ is at the center of everything we do because he's with us in everything that we do. And, you know, the word, the word made flesh, the word dwelling among us, the word moving into the neighborhood, all of that is Christ being with us, Christ moving through us, and Christ being in every single interaction that I have with everybody. You guys here that I know, people at the gas station that I don't know, people at Walmart that I don't know, Every single interaction, Christ is at the center of it because Christ comes with me, right? Christ is a part of me. Christ is expressed by me. And Christ is, Christ's love is shown to others through me being me, me being who Christ created me to be. John 8, 31 through 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this because this is what I'm going to teach on the next time I'm, I'm teaching. But a disciple abides in, in the word of God, abides in God, and abides in Christ. It sanctifies in truth because it teaches this, this abiding. Um, you know, John 4, 42, we, we no longer, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, the Samaritans. And then John 4, 34 through 38, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus talking. The fields are white for harvest. As, le as leaders, there's, there's very little we can do without abiding in Christ. Because there's little, very little effectiveness that will come of that, right? If we don't abide in Christ, and, and you ask, what does abiding mean? It means having Christ at the center of your life. 
and being intentional about that and, and looking at ways of cultivating that relationship with Jesus. And so the, the next thing that I'll teach about when I get another chance to be up here in, in October, late October, is living the cultivated life of abiding in Christ and, and, and how we do that. Because it's, it's possible for everybody, but it's difficult because it's just it's discipline, right? It's, we have to make the choices to, to pay attention to Christ. We have to make the choices to, to walk with Christ on a daily basis. So real quick and more practical even, why small groups? Here we have life groups at New Life City. Other churches do it too. And, and we, we intentionally try to keep them small. We try to keep them about 12, 15, 20 at the most. Some of them are bigger than that. Some of them are smaller than that. And, but the, the main goal is that we want to keep them small because small groups are how Jesus taught people, how he was an example to people, because small groups give effective instruction, because you can teach them by example a lot better than the multitudes, you know, like we talked about earlier. And also openness is, is a, a genuine factor in the groups as well, because no one can hide in really small groups. If you have a group of 12 people, you, can be, you, you pick out some things, right? And, and if you're discerning, you can, you can ask questions, whereas if you have a group of 100, it's a little bit harder. You have a group of 200 and up, it's impossible, right? You can't get that openness from large groups. Um, because of the openness, you get the uh, opportunity to speak into others' lives and for other people to listen to you and listen to what Christ says. You can better care for one another. There's, there's several stories of people in life groups who have gotten sick and the life group has taken care of them, right? And, and as, as, as the pastors here, there were they would often say that they can't be everywhere, but people, leaders in life groups, leaders in the ministries can, can walk with people, take care of them, and also tell, you know, pass it up the line and, and tell the pastors here about an issue going on or a problem or a hospital visit or, you know, things like that. And so when, when you have more people leading others, you have more, more people being taken care of and less chance of there being loneliness, less chance of there being that depression that comes and steals people away from, from the body of Christ. And, and coming along with that, there's better accountability for when people do fall away because you have family there who will, who will fight for you and who will seek after you and who will chase after you because of how valuable they know that you are. Um, <clears throat> and largely, the, these groups are, are led by mothers and fathers, right? The, these groups are led by people who are leading others in, in ex through an example as mothers and as fathers, drawing close to a people, drawing close to these individuals and raising them up in their in maturity in Christ and then sending them out. We're running out of time, so I need to move. Which brings us to our last, <laughs> our last section, the Great Commission <clears throat> and going. One of, the, one of the most forgotten aspects of discipleship within the past few years is this, at, is this great commission, is the act of going, right? It's gotten too comfortable to come to church, to come to these types of things, these types of settings, and come and sit down and receive, but have no opportunity to pour out into other people's lives. It's become, become just really comfortable to, to sit and listen rather than go out and do. And so in John 17, 13 through 23, I won't read the whole thing, but this is uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is Jesus before he dies on the cross and he's praying to the Father for the Father's protection over the disciples. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. He says, so that the world may... He, he said that um, we need, we're to be united so that the world may believe that you sent me, that they may be even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So we, ha we have statements here, right? Jesus was, Jesus was fulfilling his plan of coming to the earth, dying, and, and being taken away, right? But he was going to send the Holy Spirit to come and be a part of us. But his plan for us isn't necessarily follow that same that same 
track. His plan for us is that we stay in the world, that the Father keeps us from the evil one, but that we continue to express Christ's name and express who Christ is. As, as, as part of what Megan and I did in Youth with a Mission was, we taught in a K-12 school, but we also taught in the, the leadership training programs in Youth with a Mission. There's a year-long um, School of the Bible, which is just a biblical, biblical studies school. We taught in the um, discipleship training school, which is the initial school that people, everyone goes into, going into YWAM does, and then School of Evangelism as well. And so what the aspects of, of Youth with the Mission are that people come in, people learn, usually young people, learn and get close, abide in Jesus for three months, and then go out for five weeks and minister to people around the world, right? There's no, there's no years of training. There's no seminary degree at the end of it. It's just come abide in Jesus and then go out. And so we've, we've been on a lot of outreaches. We've led some. One of the, the last ones that we did was going out to um, Tampa Bay and somewhere in South Carolina, Charlotte. Charlotte, is that a place in South Carolina? Charlotte, what's that? North. <clears throat> so one of those two. And we, we, we were there during the, um, uh, the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. And so this was, this was the year before Trump was elected, or not the year, this was the election before Trump was um, elected. It was Obama's second term. And there was a lot of strife going on then too because a lot of, you know, a lot of hatred towards Obama, <clears throat> a lot of just feeling of things that aren't going right. And, and so we went to both of these, both of these conven conventions just to, to tell people about Jesus, but also to be a, a, the opposite spirit out there because there's a lot of hate, a lot of violence, a lot of this anger in these things. And so, so it, 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 was, it got pretty hairy sometimes. We were there with Rachel, my daughter, who at the time was, she was what, she was five months five months old, that was her first outreach. And there were, there were cops in riot gear, you know, standing, on, standing and holding the line and people yelling at them, people screaming back and forth. And, and we, set, we, we took up a line really close to where these guys were facing off with the riot cops. And we, we stood there and we prayed. And we had our Bibles, we were reading our Bibles, praying. And this, this one guy, he, he came, he saw what we were doing, and then he began to mock us because of what we were doing. He began to mock us as praying. And so as a leader for this group that I was with, I, I stepped out of the line and I went up to him and just addressed him and just said, hi, my name's Steve, what's your name? And he told me his name and we started talking and he asked, us, asked me what we were doing. And I said, well, we're praying and, and you know, we, we love Jesus and we want there to be you know, no violence or anything like that here. And we're just, we just wanna be Christ everywhere we are. And he, he never, never fully bought into any of that. But at the end of our discussion, I asked him, well, can I pray for you? And he said, yeah, you can pray for me. And he's, he had something going on with, with school at the time. So I prayed for him about that. And at the end, he was smiling. He was, he was nice to us. He wasn't mocking us like he was before. It was just a little, a little glimpse and a little, little bit of who Christ was in his life that, that changed his demeanor and changed how he, how he reacted towards us. And throughout our, the rest of our time at that one convention that we were at, we would see him, him and his girlfriend walking by. And every time he would see us, he would smile, he would wave at us, he would say hi. And it was like, like we were old friends. And it was just from a simple act of inviting him into this experience with us and being, being a disciple even for five minutes, you know, which, which was the time that we, that we had with him. Another one was later on, this was at the Democratic National Convention and I was tired at this time, right? I was done, Be, you know, being up in front of people isn't my favorite, most favorite thing in the world. I love teaching, but I hate doing it in front of people. And so, so this is difficult. <laughs> Uh, and because people tire me out. I'm, I'm so much of an introvert. Alan likes to say that he's, he's a public introvert, or a public extrovert and a private introvert. Whereas I'm a public introvert and a private hermit. I, I, can, I can just be home alone and, and have everything I need, you know, with Megan there too. 
Um, but so we, there's this, this other couple, they, they, there was a young couple, probably in their early 20s, going around trying to get people to download this app for the DNC convention. And they came up to me, it was a group of us, it was, it was nearing the end of the day, nearing the end of these, these two weeks that we were out, and came up to me and I, I brushed them off, right? I didn't, want, I didn't want their app, I didn't want anything to do with them, because I was tired, and I wasn't exemplifying Christ at this moment. But I said, no, no thanks. And, and then so they moved on down the line and started talking to the, to the kids that we had just been working with for these past two weeks, showing them how to disciple, showing them how to evangelize, and showing them how to love people. And these kids surrounded this couple and poured into them the love of Christ, which totally made me feel terrible <laughs> for, for not doing that in the first place. But, but it was good in seeing how, how they picked up on who Christ was and, and our example that we were showing. And regardless of how I acted, they knew how to respond in a better fashion because they, they were walking with us through the outreach, through the, the lecture phase beforehand, all that stuff. And it, it was such a mind opener to me. And then so my heart was softened towards them. So then I joined them. And this was a young couple who had just gotten married. We're thinking about, they were Christians. We're thinking about... Um, joining a, uh, a commissions organization as well so that they could get to know Jesus better as a couple. And just, you know, just thinking about my response to them could have totally deterred them from that, that goal and totally deterred them from what they were seeking. But yet God is good and these, these kids were watching us and these kids were listening to us as leaders and they went out and they said, I don't care what my leader is doing, I'm gonna tell, <clears throat> I'm gonna speak into these guys' lives. And we're going to bring Christ out of this situation. We're going to be intentional with these guys. So I'm going to end, and I'm late, because I wanted to have some discussion time among you guys, with moving to Matthew 28, 28 19 through 20, the, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. One more quick story before I'm done and we break up to talk is that I want to end with a beginning, <clears throat> a beginning of sorts. This past Sunday, I went to a funeral for a friend of mine from, from Church on the Rock. I had, gone to, I had been a part of the youth group with him and grown up knowing him. He was about five years younger than me. Um, and so he, we had his funeral on Sunday. And rather than it being primarily a sad affair, which it was because he was so young and he had two young girls. But the beauty that came out of it was the stories people told of how intentional this man was. Because he, he would speak Christ into people's lives and he would speak love into people's lives. Even if he wasn't feeling it himself or even if he was questioning God and questioning all of this stuff. He, whenever he met somebody, even if it was a homeless guy on the street, the, this guy used to um, travel around. He, had a, he was kind of like a vagabond in a sense, had a um, VW van and would go and just sleep in that and go to the beach in, in California and, and just live that lifestyle. But, <clears throat> so there were people from California that came, people, he was a Navy vet, people that knew him in the Navy, and, and of course all of us that knew him here. And there were two, two stories that came out of that that really impacted me and inspired me. And one was from his father, who he had come to, come to meet and come to know later in his life. He didn't really know him too, too well when he was younger. But his father went up and shared a story about how when they were first talking and first getting to know each other, that angel was always talking about Jesus. An angel was always talking about this life that he lived, and, and his father wasn't a Christian, but he, was, he stood up in front of us and said, but I've, I've been a Christian for a little while now. And what he did and how he spoke into my life completely changed me. And, and, and what Angel invited him into totally rerouted any, any other plans for his life. Another story from it was Rick Padilla, who I had spoken of earlier as one guy that, that discipled me. He, um, he also discipled Angel, and Angel was with them as a family for, for a, 
a long time, much, much longer than I was because I had left to do youth with the mission. And so Angel was with him, and Rick shared a story about how a time, about a time when Rick fell away from Jesus. And a time when Rick wasn't into, into Christ or into the gospel or into anything like that. But yet Angel would come and sit with him and be himself, make Rick laugh, and also instill a little bit of Jesus into him. More and more and more <clears throat> until Rick came back to Jesus, right? And so, so with that, it's, let's be more intentional with, with, with how we are with people. Even people that we think are pushing the gospel away, people that we think don't want anything to do with the gospel, those are the ones that need it the most. And those are the ones that need you the most. And so when we, when we see this great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, we see that as the final step of discipleship and being a discipler is to step out, take what we've learned and instill that into other people so that they, they mature in Christ and go out and do that same thing. So we got five minutes, and I want to ask you the question, who are you discipling? Or who are you going to disciple? What are you going to do with this information? What are you going to do with what we're learning in this, this, this course, this session, not just tonight, not just last week, but this whole 12 weeks? Because one, the one thing we can't do is take it all in and leave it inside and not do anything with it. We need to act, actively take it, mold it to who Christ has called us to be and start living it out in any way that we can.